I'd like to direct your attention to Paul's letter to the Philippians and the second chapter. We embarked on a brief series entitled, Whatever Happens, and this is based on verse 27 of Philippians, the first chapter. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Life is full of actions and reactions. The actions are the result of decisions and choices that we make. Reactions are the responses that we make to things that often are totally outside our control. Not infrequently, they are the responses to what other people do to us. It's very healthy for us on occasion to look behind our actions and say, what is it makes me tick? What do these actions say about my priorities? What do they say about my choices? What do they say about my values? What do they say about my professions of belief? The same is true with our reactions. When we react to something, more often than not, it is reflexive, it is intuitive, it is instinctive, it is not carefully crafted at the moment, because very often the things to which we are reacting take us by surprise. Therefore, when that happens, what comes out is simply an evidence of what was already inside. And so it's healthy for us to have something built into our lives, so that whatever happens our responses might be commensurate with the gospel of Christ. That's basically what Paul is saying. Now, the last time we talked about this, we noticed that sometimes things happen in our lives that will tend to knock us off our feet. But whatever happens, says the Apostle Paul, stand firm. And he gave us instructions as to how that can happen. Today, we're going to look at situations that can swell our heads. And as a result of that, he says, whatever happens, we have to stay humble. And that is the theme of this reading now from Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. This is what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Did you notice that, what he said? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now that will leap off the page at you. He doesn't just leave it there, however. He then gives us a piece of poetry that scholars believe, in all probability, is a fragment of one of the earliest hymns of the Christian church. So there's something very special about this. It's rather interesting to notice the kind of things they were singing in those days. This is what he says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you'll notice that he's saying here, this is what I want you Philippians to do. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to do that, it will be necessary in humility to consider others better than yourselves. That is a challenging statement. Now, the reason that the Apostle Paul is very much concerned about addressing these people on this subject of humility is that he understood the lack of humility, pride, is the most certain way of destroying the community of believers. The community of believers, a fellowship of faith, is intended to be a unique entity all our society is fracturing. Our cultures are decaying. On every hand, we see things flying apart. In the midst of all the fragmentation and the decay, God is building his church. His church is intended to be an alternate society. It is intended to be a unique entity characterized by an unusual unity. Now, if lack of humility is the most likely cause of destroying the unity, he finds it necessary to speak to them very forcibly about the need, whatever happens, to stay humble. Now, the particular situation in Philippi, I think, is, is very interesting. In that church, there were people who were coming from a Greek or a Roman or a Greco-Roman culture, and there are also people who came from a Hebrew background. Now, their attitudes would be very, very different. Their cultures were extremely different. But they're all together now in a community of believers. And the possibilities of tension, the possibilities of stress and strain, the possibility of the unity being destroyed were immense. And Paul knew that unless each of them we're willing to stay humble in this situation, the whole thing could fly apart. One area in which the two cultures differed dramatically was, funnily enough, in the attitude towards humility. In the Greco-Roman culture, there were certain people who were born of slaves, and so they were born into slavery. They never knew anything other than that. That was their status in life. It was a humble status. They were born in humble circumstances. It was therefore appropriate for them to go around exuding humility. It went with the territory. They were born in humble circumstances. They were born to humility. But the rest of the people were free men. Because they were not born in humble circumstances, there was no reason at all why they should exude humility. In fact, for a free man to give the impression that he was a humble person was a total contradiction in terms. In fact, the free men looked with disdain at those who exhibited humility because it was simply a statement of their low status in life. So in actual fact, 
Humility in the Greco-Roman culture was not regarded as a virtue at all. It was regarded as an evidence of weakness and low status. Now, you can imagine the problem then it would be for people raised in that culture to have the Apostle Paul talking all the time about humility. Some time ago, a book came out published by William Bennett. It was called The Book of Virtues. And to the surprise of many, many people, it became an instant bestseller. It was a very, very helpful book indeed. One of the interesting things about that book, however, was that whilst he explored all the common virtues, there was not a mention of humility. Now, some people noting this said the reason there's no mention of humility in William Bennett's book, The Book of Virtues, is because he knows nothing about it. But they were being a little hard on William Bennett. The real reason he did not mention it in his book is he was basing his virtues on Aristotle's list of virtues. And humility isn't there. For in Greek thought, humility was not a virtue. Now the Apostle Paul comes with the Christian gospel and he says one of the characteristics of the believer is humility. And they say, you've got to be kidding. The Hebrews, however, had a totally different approach. They, of course, understood that the world was created by the sovereign Lord. They understood that humanity was in an infinitesimal fragment of this vast creation. In fact, their great psalmist had looked up into the heavens and had thought of the great creator and then immediately had said, when I consider the heavens, the works of thy hands, etc., etc., what is man? That's a very humble statement. They not only understood that they were an infinitesimal fragment of creation, they knew that they were utterly dependent upon God. Not only had he brought them into existence, but he was the one who was sustaining them. Their survival was utterly dependent upon him. Not only that, they recognized that the blessings that they enjoyed in life were a result of his free initiative based on covenant love. And they recognized that all that they had came from the beneficent hand of God. And in addition to that, they recognized that ultimately they were accountable to God. Now, if you know that you're created by God, if you know you're sustained by God, if you know your existence and your survival is dependent upon God, if you know your blessings come from God and you're ultimately accountable to God, guess what's a normal attitude? Humility. Because without Him... Where would you be? So now you have an interesting situation in this little church in Philippi. You've got people coming from one background that says humility is not for us. We were born free. And the other people who say humility is the only appropriate response to our fundamental understanding of the world as it is. And the potential for a clash in that church is immense. Not only that, You've got people who are wrestling with the clash between their cultural norms and what the Bible is now teaching them. And so the possibilities for this little church coming apart at the seams are immense. And the Apostle Paul says, the only way you're going to hold things together 
and be the unified group that the city of Philippi needs in order for the purposes of God worked out through the church in this city to come to fruition. The only hope for it is that you adopt a humble attitude. Now, that's basically what this passage is about. So let me look at it in a little more detail with you for a few minutes. First of all, an explanation of why humility was necessary and expected in this fellowship of believers and in every fellowship of believers. The Apostle Paul says there are some very, very good reasons why you should be concerned about maintaining the unity of the Spirit that lack of humility would destroy. And here are some of the reasons. Number one, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ. Here's the second one. If there's any comfort from his love. Here's the third. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit. Here's the fourth. If there's any tenderness and compassion, then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now look at those four things that he majors on. In the fellowship of believers, he said, you need to be concentrating on the fact that you are united with Christ. Now, any believer who knows anything about being a believer recognizes that he or she has been introduced into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, who was crucified and rose again and who now lives. A believer understands that Christianity is not a religion where you simply observe certain commands and rules and regulations so much as Christianity is a living relationship with a living Lord. You are united with Christ and your life becomes inextricably bound up in his and his life becomes inextricably bound up with yours. It's the essence of being a Christian. Now, a Christian who's growing and maturing in the faith becomes ever more aware of being united with Christ. What they, of course, need to remember in the church is that if that is true for them, it is actually true for everybody else as well. So that in the fellowship of believers, you've got a whole lot of disparate people, but they have this in common. You wouldn't believe it, but they're all actually united with Christ. Now, if they have a common life in Christ, it's obvious that they now have something wonderfully in common themselves. Now, the problem is this. Because they come from diverse backgrounds, have diverse priorities, have diverse interests, it's easy for them to consider and to concentrate on the differences when what they should be doing is rejoicing in their commonality. We're all united with Christ. Now look at the second thing that he says. If there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love. A believer has been drawn inexorably towards God by the discovery that God loves him. She has heard the Bible say this, God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's quite possible that the believer has been encouraged as I was as a boy to put her name in John 3.16. So this is what I was taught to say from my earliest days. God so loved Stuart Briscoe that he gave his only son. 
so that if Stuart would believe in him, he would not perish, but have everlasting life. From early days, I was taught that God has demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And my heart from early days was warmed with this tremendous sense of the love of God showered upon me and invested in my life by the Holy Spirit. And it has warmed and graced my life ever since. I'm loved of God. But then one day it dawned on me, it was incredible, that God actually loved some of you as much as he loved me. And I thought, no, no, that couldn't possibly be. But then I realized it's true. Strange, but true. Now, this is what we have in common. If we're all united with Christ and we have all been drawn by the love of Christ, all these different things really, really fade into insignificance, don't they? But read on. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit. A person who's a believer has experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. It's a, it's a fascinating work, this work of the Holy Spirit. It's a convicting work that begins to show a person the reality of their own fallenness and their own sinfulness, their own moral bankruptcy before God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a converting work. It works a work of change, a work of sense of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. It's a convincing work of the Holy Spirit. He begins to convince us of the truth of who God is and what he has done and what he promises. And it is a conforming work. It begins to conform us gradually to the image of Christ. Now, obviously, all those things would preach and they, they need a lot of explanation. But the thing to realize is this. Every believer, to some extent, has experienced the convicting and the converting and the convincing and the conforming work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the incredible thing. So is every other believer. And so the same things are happening in their lives. Now look around this place. All these people, all sizes, all shapes, coming from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of priorities, all kinds of interests, all kinds of ways they've come here, all kinds of ways they started out. But if, if there are any believers here, and I, I have a reason to believe there are, then I know this about all of you. You're all united to Christ. You all have experienced the love of Christ. And every single one of you, in a very real sense, has experienced the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And in addition to that, every one of you, however crusty, however stiff upper lip, however hard-nosed you might be on the outside, has been touched with the tenderness and compassion of the loving God who's drawn you to himself. Every single one. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. It's the easiest thing in the world, in any community, for people, because of their differences, to so concentrate on their differences that tensions arise. But the only way that you can maintain the unity is to handle the tensions, and the only way that you can handle the tensions is to adopt a humble attitude to each other, 
and a humble attitude to the Lord and a humble attitude about yourself. The Bible teaches that God detests pride. He just plain hates pride. The Bible doesn't say an awful lot about the stuff that God detests, but that's one of them. And it says it more than once. It, it clearly is something that sticks in God's craw, assuming he has a craw. <laughs> it, it is something that he cannot tolerate. Now, why? Well, first of all, because pride is an attitude that refuses to acknowledge God's superiority. Pride will come through where a human being shows that he thinks that he and his opinions and his ideas and his plans are more significant than God's purposes and plans. He may say there isn't a God, or he may say there is a God, but I don't care what he says. Uh, there is a God, and I know what he says, and I know he should have done it, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's called pride, and God detests that because it is an exalting of the self at the expense of the recognition of the sovereignty of God. Pride demonstrates itself in another way. It exalts itself over against the neighbor, the other person. It regards itself as being the most significant person in the world and that everybody else should recognize it. It assumes that it has rights second to no one else. And accordingly, it demeans the other person. God says, you should love the other person. Pride says, no, I prefer to demean the other person. God detests it. And pride has a totally distorted view of the self. Pride has this idea that everything revolves around I, me, my, and mine. The kind of pride that believes that everything results around I, me, my, and mine is the kind of attitude that insists constantly on rights and rarely mentions responsibilities. And it prevails so often in our culture. Now then, if I have got an attitude where I feel superior to God and I feel superior to everybody else, and as far as I myself is concerned, I go around exuding this sense of superiority so that I can't understand why everybody else does not understand how superior and significant I am, then it is highly probable that I will not be terribly interested in making the adjustments necessary to deal with other points of view to think the way that other people are thinking, to understand what their interests are, to recognize their other priorities, and actually to realize I'm not the only pebble on the beach. That become a disruptive factor. So the Apostle Paul says what we need around here is some humility. Now, in order for that to happen, he gives some very, very practical instructions. I can simply walk you through them. In fact, probably trot you through them would be a better way of saying it. But look what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Now notice that little expression. He's already said that the Philippians bring him great joy, but his joy isn't complete. Why? They've gone a long way. They're doing very well but there are some things that still need seeing to. I wonder what they could be. Well, you can read between the lines, and it's obvious what they could be. 
the thing that would make his joy really complete would be if these individual believers in Philippi would not only mature individually, but they would begin to deal with the potential cracks and fissures and fragmentations in the community of believers that are not being resolved because there is a lack of humility among them. And he said, that has got to be dealt with. Whatever happens, whatever happens, he said, you've got to stay humble. Well, what does that look like? Well, he goes into specifics about it. He said, make my joy complete. And this is how you'll do it, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, we could spend time profitably in all those areas. We don't have time to do it, however, right now. However, let me just identify one or two things for you. It says that the humble person is the person who's going to work hard at like-mindedness. In the community of believers, if you've got people coming from one cultural background and people from the opposite, if you've got some people who think humility is a virtue and others think it's absolutely stupid, if you've got entirely different approaches to things, then, of course, it is perfectly possible that if they concentrate on their cultural norms and their own preferences, they will not have a meeting of the minds. They'll have a constant butting of heads. And this happens in many communities of believers. But the Apostle Paul says, somebody's got to back off. Somebody has got to say, look, it isn't just a case of butting heads. It's a case of recognizing that our differences are secondary. Our commonalities are primary. What are the commonalities? We're all united to Christ. We've all been comforted by his love. We've all experienced the work of the Spirit. We all know something about compassion and the tenderness of God in our lives. Okay, let's major on those things and let's make the main thing the main thing. For the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. The problem is in the church that very often the main thing that people insist on is not the main thing at all. It's their own personal priorities. And somewhere along the line, people back off humbly and say, what I think is not all that important. Let me try and find out what other people think so that there might be a sense in which we can come together and instead of majoring on secondaries, we can come unitedly to be like-minded about the main thing. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. It requires just a little humility. Whatever happens, stay humble. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. It's, it's very easy to become angry with each other. It's very easy to be irritated with each other. It doesn't really take a lot for us to become envious and jealous and resentful of each other, sadly. However, because we have been drawn by the same love and have experienced the same tenderness and compassion, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul thinks that it is perfectly reasonable to say we should humbly take the position now of saying, I choose not to be resentful. I choose not to be envious. This is what I choose. I choose to be primarily concerned with your well-being. In other words, I choose to love you. What a dramatic thing that is. 
but it does require a bit of backing off from my personal preferences. It's called humility. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Don't just come to the point of saying, well, okay, if that's the way they're going to go, I guess that's the way they're going to go, but I'm not going to go with them. No, that would not be the united spirit. It would not be a sense of united purpose. It's not the case of saying, well, if that's the way they're going to go, I didn't agree with it in the first place, and, and I'm just going to sit here and wait until I can say, told you so. No, it's going to be a case of this. The body is more important than I am as an individual. I'm part of this body. And if this is the way that the body is going, God, just enable me with genuine spirit and genuine purpose to go along with my brothers and sisters for this reason. I'm united in Christ with them. I'm comforted by the same love they're comforted. I have fellowship with the same spirit. And there's a tenderness and compassion at work in all of us. God, grant me humility to get on board with who they are and what they're doing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. One of the difficulties we have in the community of believers is that we can sound terribly sanctimonious at times and we can spiritualize a whole lot of things. And not infrequently, we can make statements that are simply a cloak for nothing less than selfish ambition and vain conceit. You know, one of the commandments is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We use that to teach our kids they shouldn't say cuss words. I don't think that's what it means, really. I think what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain is to attribute to the Lord your God things that have absolutely nothing to do with him. And perhaps the most common way of doing that is to cloak selfish ambition of vain conceit in sanctimonious terminology which says, the Lord told me. The Lord told me this. I had some people in the church when I first came here who were always coming to me and saying, the Lord told us this and the Lord told us that. And as time went on, I, I was so excited about this because it was wonderful to have some people with a clear channel to, to the Lord. <laughs> then I began to notice that everything the Lord had told them was rather negative about me. And one day they came and told me, the Lord said this about you. And so I said, when did he tell you this? And they said, in our quiet time this morning. I knew they were holier than me. So I said, what time did you have your quiet time? They said, six o'clock. Uh-huh. I said, I didn't have mine until 7.30, but he never mentioned it to me. <laughs> oh, well, that's, um, that didn't help either. <laughs> I don't know what that's got to do with anything, but it... Uh, I feel better now I've told you about it. Each one should look not only to your own. I think I've blown that bit. Let's go on to the next bit. Let's go on to the next bit now. Then he makes this wonderful statement. Oh, and this is the part that we usually spend time on in this particular passage. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he comes up with this beautiful passage, which basically says this, that the Lord Jesus was eternally used to heaven. And he voluntarily laid aside all the trappings and all the benefits and all the glory of being eternally part of heaven. And he volunteered to come down to a sin-stricken world that was full of riot, was full of disease, that was full of hatred and war and belligerence and envy and jealousy. 
he actually volunteered to come down. We put on a pedestal people who volunteer to leave America and go to the Sudan, don't we? We think they're wonderful. Ooh, I could never do that. What did he do? He laid aside all the trappings of glory and came down here. Came in embryonic form. Actually, in embryonic form, his life was under threat because there was a sense in which this virgin might have been put away. When he was born, he was born in a stable and cradled in a manger. Immediately, the authorities tried to assassinate him and he became a refugee before he was one. Lived 30 years in obscurity, self-imposed obscurity, took on a menial task, learnt servanthood. Then eventually embarked on his public ministry and going into his public ministry, he was met by unbelievable opposition, unrelieved hatred and antagonism. Eventually was falsely accused, illegally tried, immorally sentenced cruelly crucified and he took it he could have called a thousand angels he could have called the hosts of heaven to deliver him at any moment he chose not to he took it and when he hung on that cross he became the personification of sin itself a sin offering for us and on his defenseless head poured out the holy righteous indignation and just judgment of a holy, righteous, just God against the sins of the whole world. And he took it. And he went down into death. Even the death of a cross. It's called humility. God raised him from the dead. Took him to his own right hand and set everything under his feet and said, the day will come when you'll be seen to be King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow to you and every tongue will confess to you. And the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian Christians, you guys are arguing, you're fractious, you're breaking the unity of the spirit because you're more interested in your interests than the interests of another. You're not interested in the unity of the spirit. You're not interested in being the body of Christ. You're all going after your own thing and you're contentious. Make my joy complete and just get a whole new attitude. And if you want a model, there it is. It's Jesus. Claim to be followers of Jesus, don't you? Why don't you follow him? Is Jesus the only one who should go through self-humiliation? Or is it that his followers become people who will say, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. And as a result of that, there'll be a great unity of the Spirit because people aren't out for their own ends. People are out for the glory of God and the well-being of the body. Paul says to the Philippians, you're doing very well, folks. You're a great joy to me. Now make my joy complete and learn whatever happens to stay humble. Well, there's a challenge for me. There's a challenge for you. But whatever happens, stay humble. Let's pray together. Lord, when we look into your word and we take the time to think about it, we recognize that we really do have a major issue with the culture 
into which we were born and in which we've grown up, whose values and priorities we embrace so often unthinkingly. We have to admit that we're not exactly Greco-Roman culture, but we don't exactly in our culture advocate humility. We're told that we should be buying all kinds of things because we owe it to ourselves. We are encouraged to look out for number one. We are told repeatedly that if we don't promote ourselves, nobody else will. We all know that it's normative to pad our resumes. This idea of humility doesn't make an awful lot of sense to our society. And we can see where lack of humility and an excess of pride gets us. It gets us into tensions, it gets us into stress, it gets us into conflict, it gets us butting heads instead of working to a meeting of minds. And then the tragedy is that we bring all this into the body of Christ and we find little struggles going on and little wars going on and people not speaking to each other and people jealous and envious of each other and people protecting their own little pieces of ecclesiastical turf. Lord, forgive us. And help us to understand the model of our Lord Jesus. And help us to understand the things that we do have in common with our sisters and brothers. What it means to be united with Christ. To be comforted by his love. To have fellowship with the Spirit. To have experienced tenderness and compassion. And help us, gracious Lord, through the prompting and enabling of your Holy Spirit to do whatever needs to be done in situations where we, quite frankly, have been concentrating on our interests to the exclusion of the interests of others. Help us, dear Lord, to concentrate on areas where we have made not the slightest effort to be like-minded with others who think differently. Help us in our attitudes where our attitude has been to hold on to the things that the Lord Jesus would tell us to let go. In other words, help us to grow in grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.